0: Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Could you say that in Spanish? I Given cannot. You just, got, you, you just got back from Mexico.
1: You were in Mexico for a week, recovering. Not not relaxing, not vacationing, but recovering <laughs> from StarCast. So I'm just wondering, did you pick up any Spanish other than uh, cerveza, por favor?
0: No, I did not. Uh, I didn't see any humans. It was just me and the wife, and uh, every morning a lady would come make us breakfast, and that was it. That was the end of my human interaction. So I guess I learned please and thank you, but that's about it. So so where did you go? Uh, I went just outside of Cabo. We rented a we rented a house just outside of Cabo, like a private residence. So it wasn't like a hotel or anything. So I didn't have any I didn't have to do any of that stuff. Like walk around in my underwear, float around the pool, do what I want.
1: So did you see any like massive, you know, drug cartel cartel deals go bad or any of that crazy shit that we keep happening about hearing about that happens in Mexico?
0: Surprise. No, of course not.
1: No? No. It was cool, calm, relaxing
0: not like gonna say it was cool or calm uh, i burned all the skin off my nose but but i lived uh but yeah it was it was definitely relaxing you know i lost track of time a little bit uh didn't wear a watch which as you know is new for me and put my phone down and uh tried to play catch up what's uh what's recovery from starcast been like for you just another weekend huh you know kind
1: of i have to say that my starcast weekend
0: <clears throat>
1: and i'm you know, I'm 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 kind of conflicted in terms of how I feel about it because, you know, when I heard sarcas, you know, two was going on in Vegas. Of course, you know, I get all excited about going to Vegas and thinking about all the great things I'm going to do and all the fun I'm going to have. And honestly, and this is almost embarrassing. I'm this is the part that I'm conflicted about admitting. I relaxed more in Las Vegas than I probably do when I'm home. I was in bed by nine o'clock every freaking night. I hate you. I didn't do any of the things that I thought I was going to do when I got to Vegas. I mean, I had all kinds of decadent plans. I was going to party it up because you never know at this stage of my life, I'm thinking, well, this may be the last time I go to Las Vegas and really have a chance to, you know, live it up. And I got to Las Vegas, and I hung out with Sonny Ono, and I hung out with, with Stevie Ray and Scott Norton and Ernest Miller and Scott Norton's wife, Tammy, and Road Warrior Animal. And that was like the highlight. And we were done by 9 o'clock. It, it, it was such a calm. And re- I was up by 6.30 every morning. I wasn't over. <laughs> I wasn't out partying. I didn't go to the Betty Boot Bar or whatever the fuck it's called now at the MGM Grand sure it's called something else i didn't do any of the things that i thought i was going to do i was in bed between 8 30 and 9 o'clock every night how bizarre is that
0: yeah that's not what i expected i really did expect to uh hear you talking about the betty boot bar trying to pick up chicks over there or something
1: no i had all kinds of crazy plans i thought you know this is a chance for me to get to vegas and you know Throw myself back in time and party it up and do all the crazy shit that Vegas has to offer. I did nothing. Nothing. Sonny and Julie, his wife, took me out to sushi dinner Saturday night. It was a Friday night or Saturday night. One of the nights. We went out to sushi one night. I took them out to dinner the next night. And that was it. That was it. I, I'm, I'm really feeling old. I feel my age at this point.
0: Well, if you missed all the fun in Las Vegas, you can still make it happen at starcastonfight.com. The replays are available, they're in high def, they're unlimited. Uh, so when you download this, you've got it for life. It's starcastonfight.com or just check it out at fight.tv. Lots of fun panels, including one on the Nitro book, which I recently covered here on the show with Guy Evans and a whole host of folks who work behind the scenes in WCW. So what are you waiting on? Go check out what the world is still talking about. Starcastonfight.com. All right, Eric, let's get into it. We're doing a Q and a episode this week. We like to call it, ask Eric anything. And we've got a bunch of good questions here. Eric, are you ready? Fire it up, brother. Fire it up. Michael Hankinson wants to know, at what point did you realize there were too many members of the NWO? Towards the end of 1998,
1: when I realized that I was gonna have a really difficult time effectively splitting the brands between Thunder and Nitro. We we, we kind of had the handcuffs put on us financially, uh, and we just weren't able to do the job that I knew we needed to do in order to effectively create two separate brands. And at that point, I'd already built the NWO up, anticipating a split, And realized it wasn't really going to happen the way I wanted it to, but yet I had all this NWO talent, you know, roster built up. So it was towards the end of 98. Uh,
0: this is an interesting question and we got lots of variations of this one. Um, Just Scott is one of the folks who wrote in. You've said on several episodes that you were setting up WCW versus NWO to ultimately be two separate brands on the two separate shows. What happened that prevented WCW Thunder and NWO Nitro from being a reality?
1: And this is kind of connected to the first question, but you know, when you, when you decide, for example, to have two separate brands, two different marketing campaigns, two different promotional campaigns, two two different branding campaigns, all of that costs money. And then when you've budgeted for that and that budget has been approved a year in advance and then all of a sudden two or three or four months before the budget is reallocated and you don't have the money to do what you need to do in order to do it well, that causes an issue. And that's really what happened.
0: Let's keep it going here with A.J. Kirsch. It's hypothetically if AEW offered you a position as, say, an executive producer, would you take it? If the role of executive producer wouldn't pique your interest, is there a position that would?
1: You know, that's such a that's such a hard question to answer. <clears throat> Obviously, any opportunity in in a business that I've been involved in, you know, for the past thirty or thirty two years, would get my interest. Um, You know, so much of it depends on what I don't know. You know, what are AEW's goals? You know, what's their strategy? What are their plans? You know, what's their five-year business plan? I've I've learned the hard way that if you really don't have a plan that's been well-vetted and really thought through, the chances of being successful are minimal. And I really wouldn't want to be involved in something that wasn't really well planned. Now, that being said, if it was really well planned and it was a great strategy and a business plan in place that made sense that I could, you know, relate to or identify with or feel comfortable with, of course, you know, I'm look, you know, I may be 64 years old and I may have been in the business for 32 years or more, but. There's a part of me that is passionate about the business. I love the creative side. I love the strategy of building things from scratch. So that's very appealing to me. But I I really wouldn't want to get involved with something, no matter whether it's AEW or anything else. If it's not well-funded, if there's not a really, really smart business plan attached to it, the chances of it being successful five or ten years from now are pretty minimal. And I just – I really – would, would have a hard time getting excited about something that really wasn't thought through and there wasn't a solid plan. Flip side of that, like I said, if there was, oh, hell yeah.
0: Uh, Liam wants to know, what was your first reaction upon hearing your WWE theme song? I
1: kind of dug it. You know, I wish I would have sung it myself. I think I could have pulled that off. <laughs> But, no, I, I, I dug it. You know, they, like so many of the WWE theme songs during that period of time, and even prior to me coming in, obviously, you know, that really helped identify the character in a way. I mean, if you listen to the lyrics and, you know, the, the vibe of the music, it really, really helped identify the character. And I think my, my music, um, hats off to Jim Johnson, probably did as great of a job of not only being cool music, that got everybody up and got everybody excited, you know, during an entrance. But it also, in its own way, defined the character, and and I think that's you know what made Jim Johnson so spectacular. You know, it's one thing to have great music. You can you can rip off music. You can license music, like I did with you know Hulk Hogan and Jimi Hendrix. There's all kinds of ways that you can come up with the you know with great music that really adds to the character and builds anticipation. But when you have to write it yourself, you know, that takes a real talent and like, you know, hats off to Jim Johnson, but as it relates to my music and WWE, I thought it was about as perfect as it could be.
0: No arguing that. I mean, they really, they nailed it for you. Gary wants to know question for both of you. What is your best advice to look for when hiring people to work for you? Um,
1: I put passion and intensity, like number one experience and a feel for the business is number two. Number three is integrity and honesty. You know you, you, I've said this before in different ways. I can work with people that I don't like. I have no problem working with people that I'm you know I don't hang out with or. I don't socialize with, and and I respect them and we work well together and things like that. So, you know, being someone I like, isn't a prerequisite being someone I trust is, and you know, that that's right up there, probably closer to the top.
0: Jeff wants to know in a recent interview with Chris Jericho, Dave Meltzer said that you were given two weeks to get a TV deal before Turner sold WCW to McMahon. Is this true? No, it's not.
1: It's it's a typical version of the truth that that's been highly manipulated and part of the narrative. Look, I had a, a good relationship with Peter Liguri. Peter Liguri was the head of FX. Kevin Riley was right underneath him. I'd had many conversations with both Peter Liguri and Kevin Riley and FX about doing something and moving one of the brands over to FX. But those conversations all took place six months or so before we ever attempted to buy WCW. So there was, you know, while I had a great relationship with them and actually subsequently sold the series to WGM, which Peter Liguri was overseeing at the time. And that was just about a year and a half or two years ago, um, called Outlaw Country. But those conversations about WCW and moving one of the brands over to FX had already matured. And they didn't work out. Now, what did happen, and this is, you know, the typical kernel of truth that one will find in Dave Meltzer's reporting on things, is that when things started to unwind for the acquisition of WCW, I did have a conversation with Brad Siegel. It was a very short conversation. But Brad said to me, look, TNT really wants to get a secondary run on Buffy the Vampire, Vampire Slayer, which was a Fox property. And Brad said to me, "Hey, if you think there's a way that you could negotiate Buffy the Vampire Slayer into an FX deal and salvage this, we're open." And that was, you know, that that got tossed out to be like w- within 48 hours of the deal closing with WWF at the time. And I, I, I think I made one phone call, and it was just there was no way to put that deal together. But there, 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 was, there was no two-week deadline or. Whatever Dave reported wasn't true. The only thing that was true is Brad Siegel thought that perhaps if I could get the rights to Buffy the Vampire Slayer for TNT, that there may be a way to revisit the conversation. But that that lasted about five minutes.
0: Josh Kuhn wants to know, what would have been Eric's five-man WCW team to take on the WWE from the Monday Night Wars era? So let's pretend for a minute that the invasion angle, which we're going to cover very soon here on the show. Stay tuned for dates on that. We'll, we'll run through it in a little bit, but let's pretend for a minute that you guys were going to do some sort of joint show and you're going to have five on five in the main event. We'll call it 1998, late 1998. And they've got their best five. You've got your best five. Who would your best five have been?
1: That's a great question. That's not Matt Coon, right?
0: No. No, this is someone we like. This is Josh Coon. All right. Not that big old dipshit. All
1: right. So I would go late 98. I had to put Goldberg on top. I would have put Mach in there. Yep. Because he told a great story. I had to put Jericho in there because he would have blown everybody away.
0: Didn't see that one. Didn't see that one.
1: Why not? He had great matches.
0: I don't know. Just no Flair, no Hogan, no DDP, no Nash, no Sting. Fuck, I'm
1: not done yet, brother.
0: I'm just saying you listed Jericho before any of those. I'm I'm shocked.
1: Well, I'm not putting them in any particular order. For fuck's sake, I'm just.
0: All right, give me the this other two names, th- Jack. Dick. This is oh.
1: off the top of my mind. You didn't give me that. You didn't give me these questions in advance, brother. I'm just kind of this is top of mind. So I would have gone Jericho, for the action. Um, okay, what do we got? Three so far. Yeah,
0: I got two more.
1: Two more. I, I would have had to put in DDP because he was hot as shit then. Okay. And I would have thrown Rey Mysterio in there for my fire.
0: Holy shit! All right. Lots of new answers from you today. I did not expect that, brother. Uh, what
1: did you expect? What did you expect? Come on, tell me. Hulk Hogan.
0: I mean, I I would have thought you would have went Hulk Hogan, um, Goldberg, Kevin Nash, Macho Man, DDP. That's who I thought your five would have been.
1: No, because you know, again, if you're going head to head against, you know, WWF at that time, Everybody, you know, Hulk Hogan was Hulk. Hulk Hogan's—he's an entity upon himself. Right. There would have been no need to tag him in. Um, It would have been let's blow him away time. And I think that roster that I just went through would have blown him away.
0: All right. Next up, we've got this—a fun one. Lots of variations of this. Matt Maloney wants to know what part of running WCW was the most satisfying for you. And you mean specifically when you had WCW at its most intense peak, how did that make you feel? What did it mean to you personally? You know, talk us through sort of, and you and I've talked about this a lot. You you sort of just did day by day. And now this experiment you and I are doing these 83 weeks shows that we're doing together, you get to go back and revisit some of these really proud moments of your life that maybe you weren't slowing down enough to sort of smell the roses back in the day. It's very true.
1: When I look back at it now, especially after doing this podcast with you for the last year or so, um, because it, it, it allows me, it gives me the privilege or the advantage to look back at things in a much different way. Right. Um, if I'm really honest with myself, it the most satisfying part of it for me wasn't when we were at our peak. It was... Figuring out a way to get there. I've always loved building things. Mm -hmm. When you can take an idea, or I hate to use the word vision because it's overused, but when you when you have a picture in your head of what you think something can be, and and you may get that you know I'll speak for myself. I may get that picture at a restaurant while I'm you know in the middle of breakfast, or if I'm on a treadmill, or I'm walking my dog, or reading a book or whatever it is, you when you get an idea that's just an idea and then you start massaging that idea and building upon that idea until it becomes something more than just a thought and it's actually like a blueprint and you think it through in enough detail, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, when it becomes that granular and clear to you in your mind, it literally is, I've always used this analogy, it's a little bit like, an architect sitting down and just imagining, just using your imagination and coming up with a blueprint for the coolest house, the coolest building, the coolest cabin, whatever it is. But it it all starts in your head. And when those thoughts in your head begin to make sense on paper, and then as you execute those thoughts that are on paper and you start seeing them on television and they start manifesting and the audience reacts to them, that is a very, very cool feeling. I mean, you know, other than great sex, I mm. can't think of anything that gets me more excited than to build just a nascent idea, just a random idea. What if, those are my two favorite words, what if, what if we do this? And, you know, if, if you start, if if you go into a creative process or you're just riffing and sitting around a room going, okay, wh- how do we make this bigger than it's ever been? How do we shift the audience's thoughts or perception from who we are to what we want them to perceive us to be? Whatever the challenge is creatively, when you sit around in a room and you start out with a blank piece of paper and the fir- the way you open that conversation up and collaboration up is, what if that's that that to me is so exciting. And that process is so exciting. And that that was the the process th- that I, I got most excited about when we launched Nitro because I had a gun to my head. It, again, I've said this a million times. Nitro, you know, going head to head with WWF at the time was not my idea. That was Ted Turner's idea. I just had to execute on it. And when you have that kind of pressure to execute on, you know, a challenge that, that is you know, daunting, you know, t- to go in a room and say, okay, what if? How do I do this? What if I do this? What if I do that? Two most powerful questions in the universe are what if? And I miss that. You know, I, I miss I miss starting from scratch and building something. Or, or, you know, even if it's not starting from scratch, if you get, a, you know, a, a piece of talent in that you didn't know was going to, I hate to say piece of talent, makes them sound like a side of beef. But if you get an opportunity to work with a talent that's brand new to your company, you you know, when you sit down and go, okay, what if we do this, that, 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 what if process is what I miss the most.
0: Yeah. Tune in next week. We're going to hear about hard dick ninjas right here on 83 weeks. (laughs) Um, WBW mania writes, I'm always too late. I've asked this a few times, but it hasn't been answered yet. Why didn't the commentators make more of Hulk Hogan? Hulk Hogan, easy for me to say, hulking up at Uncensored 99 when he hadn't done it since 1996. That's sort of of interesting, I guess. We should mention that this Uncensored 99, and I'm sure you probably don't remember that, but the jam is this is the barbed wire fence, the barbed wire steel cage match that we covered earlier this year with Ric Flair and Hollywood Hogan. And it's a first blood match. And... Well, there's just a lot of shenanigans going on. Arn, David Flair, Stacy Keebler, and we start to see Hulk Hogan out of nowhere do the old school Hulk up. And we haven't seen that since he was a good guy in 1996.
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure I was too involved in that. I mean, if it's uncensored 99, right? Mm-hmm. What month would that be?
0: March. You were there.
1: Eh, I was, but that was really early, and I was kind of planning on what I was going to be doing two months from then, not that particular pay-per-view. So I'm, I'm only going to take so much heat for that or responsibility for it. I'm guessing there just was not a lot of coherent thought and creative because that was a moment That that's a really good question by the way and it's a good note you know if if someone was you know looking at a script for this particular pay-per-view and in that script there wasn't some kind of note about really focusing on that and making that a big moment because it should have been to, to the listeners credit for picking up on that if that note would have not been in there that would have been a real real mistake um, but Honestly, I don't think I was involved with laying out that pay-per-view, even though technically I was there, I think I was there like for a month. But my goal at that point was looking two or three months ahead, not at that particular pay-per-view.
0: Josh McCarty wants to know, I've always liked the Battle Bowl concept and still think of Starcade 91. as one of the more rewatchable shows. By the way, you're the only one, Josh. Was there ever any consideration to bringing it back after 1995, or was the lack of true stakes a deal breaker for that match concept?
1: Stakes was always an issue for me, even more so now. You know, I was beginning to understand, really, at a very nascent level, was beginning to understand just how important stakes are in any kind of matchup, and the lack of stakes and the randomness of it. I mean, I like the idea of it. You know, it was a spectacle. It was different. There was a lot of reasons why. That was a Dusty Rhodes thing. There was a lot of reasons why it was a great concept, but it kind of falls into that gimmick match category, and this is the problem I've always had consistently with gimmick matches, is they tend to lean heavily on the gimmick, and the more heavily you lean on a gimmick, the less emphasis you put on personal stakes, and it's subliminal. You know, people don't, especially wrestling people, because wrestling. And this is this is the problem with wrestling people writing wrestling, is because because wrestling people tend to think about the high spots, the moment, the reaction, and those are all important things. I'm not suggesting they're not. They they meaning wrestling people tend not to think about the episodic nature of it, of whatever they're producing, and when you start producing content that is emphasizing something that's unique that's different that's random that's a gimmick match you kind of forget to think about the episodic nature of it where does it go from here that was one i mean you know i'm not i'm not here to be i'm tired of beating up on people especially the same people over and over again because it just gets redundant for me and, and I'm sure the listeners. So I don't mean this to sound like a critique of anybody, but it's easy to produce one really cool big event and then worry about what you're going to do next week or the week after or the month after, or the, month after or the month after that down the road. That's typical wrestling kind of writing, if you will. Vince Rousseau was probably more guilty of that than anybody that I've worked with. Um, and it, those, those types of events that are like all about the spectacle, all about the gimmick, with really no story going into it, really no stakes attached to it, you get done with it, and people go, wow, that was crazy, that was good. And then when you're done with it, you're, you're literally almost starting from scratch because you haven't built towards anything. And if, and if you try to piece it together after the fact, you're really piecing a story together after the fact as a, as an afterthought, not, not as something that you plan for. So battle bull to me was one of those great spectacles. It was a really cool event and there was a reason to do it. And I understand the reason to do it at the time, uh, because, you know, going back to some of the podcasts that you and I have done before, it's really important that each pay-per-view has its own personality. So people, you know, like Royal Rumble does, or obviously WrestleMania is WrestleMania. That's that's kind of a standalone. But, you know, so many of the other pay-per-views that we're familiar with are tent poles. They're they're pay-per-views that everybody already kind of understands the format and what it's going to be like. And Battle Bowl was designed to be that. But unfortunately, it didn't lend itself to anything prior to or after the fact. So... I could spend about 45 minutes talking about that, but I hope that's clear.
0: Seth has a good question here. He wants to know how did spring stampede 94 almost, if not actually sell out the Rosemont horizon, considering the poor houses that were commonplace in WCW in that year, Hogan had not yet come in.
1: You know, hats off to Zane Bresloff and Gary Jester and whoever else was working in, you know, marketing and promoting that event, you know, Chicago is a great wrestling town spring stampede for a while was a pretty cool event had its own personality thanks to dusty and it was a spectacle um so i would i would have to point to those factors
0: let's keep it moving here christian wants to know if wcw had won the monday night wars how would you have done the invasion angle or would you have at least had some other plan now we're going to talk about this invasion show soon enough i guess we should mention now that we've already got our, our schedule mapped out. Like we know what we're going to cover and when we're going to cover it. Uh, and I guess I should just go ahead and tell everybody now that we've already got an invasion show scheduled. Uh, I can't believe we're really doing this, but we are on July 22nd. We're going to sit down and watch the WWF's invasion pay-per-view. And it's going to be a watch along where Eric, I believe you'll watch that show for the very first time. Do I have that right? Yep. And, and we'll get to sort of break down an armchair quarterback, you know, what that might look like. Um, so in the meantime, I'll give you the, ru- the rundown next week on June 10th, we're going to do a June 10th, 1996 nitro watch along. This is going to be when Kevin Nash shows up. We've recently talked about when Scott Hall showed up, of course, and everything changed. Well, we haven't done the Kevin Nash episodes. So we're going to do that on June 10th. On June 17th, we're going to cover the great American bash 1999 On June 24th, we're going to cover Clash of the Champions 27, where Ric Flair and Sting meet to unify the world title. You may recall they had the belt that Vader wore as the world champion, and they also had the big gold belt by this point, so they combined them both here at Clash 27. On July 1st, we'll revisit Bash at the Beach 1998. On top there is the biggest main event of the year, as far as pay-per-view buys go. It's Diamond Dallas Page and um, Carl Malone taking on Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman the following week. We're going to do something a little different. It's the July 6th, 1998 raw, and we're going to do it as a watch along. So you might be wondering, why are we watching raw? That's the day where Hulk Hogan lost the world title to Bill Goldberg on nitro. So we want to examine what Eric's thoughts are on what the competition aired, which famously you may remember is happening during brawl for all. And it's also when they did the DX parody of the nation. Uh, so it'll be interesting to get Eric's take there. July 15th we'll cover Bash at the beach in 1999 where Kevin Nash would team up with Sting to take on Randy Savage and Sid then of course that invasion show on the 22nd of July and then we'll wind down July on the twenty ninth when we cover the Big Bad Booty Daddy Scott Steiner in WCW and what a story Scott had when I run through the upcoming lineup here, what jumps out at you?
1: I need to do my homework. <laughs> it's a lot of great material there that, that deserves a lot of thought and research. So I'll be fortunately, I have plenty of time to go back and, and revisit, you know, not only those pay-per-views and those matches that you are talking about, but also all the things that were leading up to them. Cause th- that period of time to me, and I'm, I think to many wrestling fans, 97, 98 was one of the most exciting times in, in our business. And so many things changed so quickly. So it'll be fun to go back and look at it.
0: It will be fun. We hope you join us here. If you've got some suggestions for what we'd like to see on the show, you can always participate on Twitter at 83 weeks. Michael wants to know about this dog though. How did you come to get a blue healer? Did you see one somewhere? What made you love them so much? Of course, a blue healer is the breed of dog that you have. And you've talked about your dog a lot here on the show. Chat me up.
1: Okay, so a
0: blue healer
1: is also known as, the breed is actually registered with American Kennel Club as an Australian cattle dog, but they're often referred to as either blue healers or red healers, depending on the coloration, obviously. The healer aspect of it is because they're, the, the, these dogs, the healers, Australian cattle dogs, red or blue, were bred for the Australian outback, Back in, God, I'm going to get my timelines wrong, but probably the 20s and the 30s, when a, the, the cattle business was really blowing up in Australia, but they needed a really tough dog, a, a, a dog that could withstand extreme temperature conditions, hot and cold, a dog that was physically tough, tough that could you know get kicked in the head by a by a cow and still keep going that had a, an amazing amount of endurance and had a natural herding instinct. And the, the breeder, and I, I can't remember his name, but the original breeder of the Australian catalog or blue healer used the Australian dingo, which is basically an Australian version of, of a coyote, um, a Kelpie, which is a English breeding or excuse me, a herding breed, um, and I think it's for Australian Shepherds. And there was actually a little bit of Dalmatian mixed into the breed as well. And the individual that, that was experimenting with this breed kept trying different combinations and breeding different pairs till they came up with this dog that is now registered with the American Kennel Club as an Australian cattle dog. But it's really a mix of the Australian Dingo, which is a wild dog. And that's where it gets its toughness and its instinct from, protectiveness from, loyalty from. And then the, the, the herding instinct probably comes from the, the English Kelpie or, Australian, or, excuse me, or, or English Shepherd, I guess, is another term. <clears throat> but it's that combination that made these dogs so great. Now, in, in terms of where my first exposure came about 1991 or 1992 when I brought my kids. We were living in Atlanta. I brought my wife and kids out to Wyoming for a, a week or so, and I took them up on a horseback ride up into the wilderness with a guide. And the guide had an Australian cattle dog. And I watched closely because I've always been a big fan of dogs and I've always loved dogs. But I've, I've always been interested in the different kind of psychology or the characteristics of different kinds of breeds. And I was watching this particular dog that took us out of this guided horseback ride. And he was so protective and he was always out in front. And where I live, up in the mountains, there's a lot of grizzly bears. And these dogs are fearless. My fifty pound Australian cattle dog will fuck with a grizzly all day long. They have no fear. And so much so, they're so protective. And again, when you're up in the mountains and you're, you know, you're staring down an eight hundred pound grizzly bear that loves to eat people, you want something that's there to either protect, distract, or otherwise help you avoid a confrontation. And an Australian cattle dog that that's what where I live up here, people that are professional guides, whether it's you know pack trips or fishing trips or anybody that goes up into the mountains, they have Australian cattle dogs because they will kick the fuck out of a grizzly. And when I was up on this ride, you know with my kids, because they were very young at the time, they were like eight or ten years old, I'm thinking, you know what? Someday I'm gonna have one of these dogs. They're so loyal. They're so smart. It's incredible how smart they are. And like I say, they're fearless. You know, big dogs the like German Shepherds, Doberman, Pitchers, all the dogs that people <laughs> think is real protective dogs, and they are. There's no question about it. But those dogs wouldn't last five minutes up in the mountains. <laughs>
0: you
1: know? they, they don't have the endurance, right? <laughs> a cattle dog has the endurance. You could take a cattle dog out 15 or 20 miles up in the mountains, and it'll it will it, it'll take on a grizzly all day long.
0: Eric, are, if you'd like to pick up one of these dogs, please visit our, like, what the fuck? Are we selling blue healers? You've just sold me a dog. Dude,
1: you asked me a question. I'm passionate about my I, dog. I, I you can, know that. I can you tell. asked me a question you knew I would get excited about. How could you how could <laughs> you be surprised? No, it
0: just tickles me. Because so you're like selling this dog. I'm like, damn, are we making a commission on these dogs? Like I gotta get it. No, in on and,
1: but here's the truth. I would discourage the average <laughs> person from getting one of these dogs. In fact, if you hear me talking about this dog and it sounds like a dog that you want, I'm going to tell you now, don't get it. <laughs> because of, because of, unless you have oh, a significant amount of time to devote to these dogs, and I mean when I say devote, not only training, because they're really super smart, they're easy to train, but you, these dogs have so much energy. Like my dog, I have to get up and spend two hours every morning before the sun comes up. Well, not before it comes up, but as the sun comes up, I'm out taking my dog on a six mile hike every single day. Cause if I don't, she will like chew the shit out of my refrigerator. You have to work these dogs. They have so much energy. You have to work. them.
0: I have never loved you more than I love you right now. So, you know, that's so fun for me. (sighs) Sean wants to know, do you wish social media would have been around during the Monday night wars and would you have utilized it to tweak Vince?
1: second part of the question, would I ever use, utilize it to tweak Vince? Of course. What the fuck does anybody think? Come on. Of course. We, we've been watching. We watched my stuff long enough to know the answer to that. Yes. Do I wish it would have been around? Of course I do. You know, keep in mind when, you know, 98 is when the internet first started really becoming a real thing.
0: And Wait, wait, wait. You said you wish it would have existed?
1: No, of course I wish it. It it, it existed. Look, social media, especially if you look at it today, and I would like to think, you know, I would have been smart enough to figure this out. But if you look, here's an example. Becky Lynch. Seth Rollins is starting to do the same thing recently. They're really using social media as an extension of what we see on television as a way to keep their characters alive even after after the show goes off the air and i'm I'm really I'm, I'm i'm so fascinated by watching how people are starting to use social media they're getting so much smarter and so much more consistent in a positive way with it whereas before it was like oh look what i had for breakfast oh look at me and my dog oh look at me and my wife or my girlfriend or my kids or whatever it's all like oh hey look at me but now i'm starting starting to really see people really effectively using social media as an extension of whatever we're seeing on television or an extension of their characters. And I would like to think that I would have been smart enough to see that opportunity. So in that context, of course, I would have liked to have had that tool because it's just one more, you know, just one more, one more weapon, one more tool, you know, one more way of execute. One
0: more way of getting in trouble. You know, if WCW, if the Monday night wars existed in the cell phone era, Boy, people would have been drunk tweeting and taking pictures, and Flair would still be in jail. Like, I mean,
1: yeah, that (laughs) it's easy to overlook that aspect of where everybody's heads were at back in the late '90s. Clearly, there would have been a learning curve.
0: (laughs) It would have been horrifying. Carl wants to know if he didn't go into TV and wrestling, what do you think he would have done? Do you still think?
1: The fuck are you laughing at, brother? What's that question?
0: That, I'm just gonna stop there. If you didn't go into TV and wrestling, what do you think you would have done?
1: Why is that so funny? I don't know. I might have become senator, of state of Minnesota.
0: Fuck off.
1: I, 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 I who knows what I would have done? I mean, you know, I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always been successful. You know, it's, it's not that I've stayed successful throughout the entire part of my life but if you look at you know my success failure factors and you know <laughs> over the course of the last 40 years or so maybe longer 50 years really um, for the most part I've always had a fair amount of success in whatever I did so I'm not really sure what I would have been doing but I would
0: have been great at it I love your confidence. The answer is sales, though, right? You would—I mean—you you had a, a gig in sales. You know sales what, no, Conrad?
1: Here, Here's—you know—I had this conversation with someone recently, and I firmly believe this, and I know that you probably do too. So this is going to be a controversial thing for us to talk about, but I think whatever it is you are successful at in life, it is rooted in your ability to sell. Yeah. Whether it's your passion, your art. Your personality, your service, whatever it is you're representing, if you're passionate about it and you are inherently or or by education or experience a good salesperson, you're going to be successful. And I think that's something that people don't pay enough attention to, you know, especially as time goes on. I don't want to get you know political at any expense, but there's so much emphasis put on. You know, where did you go to college? What's your degree in? You know, and, and to me, it's like, God, the question should be, what's your passion? You know, what makes you most excited? What gets you up every morning? Those are the things that I think define someone who is successful or unsuccessful. But regardless of all of that, if you don't have the ability to communicate it or sell it, you're not going to be successful. And I've, I've always been a good salesman. I ran away from home when I was four and a half years old. My parents tell me this. I don't remember it. I decided I was going to run away from home. And I went around my neighborhood and I collected pop bottle caps. Because where I lived, there was a lot of them laying around on the road. And I collected a big bag full of pop bottle caps. And then I went door to door selling them at four or five years old. And my my idea was I'm going to sell all these pop out caps and I'm you know I'm going to get a bus ticket I'm going to go somewhere, you know that's been my nature and my instinct.
0: But <sighs> wait you know a minute, minute. you I were was... you were trying to catch a fucking bus at four?
1: Yeah, I wanted to move. I, I <laughs> wanted to go do something. I was running away from home.
0: You were joining the New World Order at four? That's hilarious. I didn't even
1: know where I was going to go. I didn't even know where to find the bus, but I knew I had to have money to do it. Picture this now. You're, you know, you're a blue-collar person, you know, mom and dad, kid or two of your own. You hear a knock on the door. You go, who the hell is that? You open up the door and there's a four- or five-year-old kid standing there with a paper bag full of pop-out caps saying, I'll sell you two for a quarter. Well, you know you're going to get a quarter. The kid's too cute. How are you going to say no to a five-year-old kid? I came home with about six bucks, which... You know, in nineteen sixty was a fair amount of money. So yeah, I've always been an entrepreneur. And 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 when I say entrepreneur, I real what I really mean is I've always been a salesman. And I would have been successful at whatever I decided I wanted to be passionate about.
0: Robert wants to know, I'm interested in knowing your opinion on why WWE needs to be PG in order to make its stockholders happy. There are many programs on T V that show more adult material made by studios that are publicly traded. You want to tackle that one?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. That's almost a show in and of itself, really. That's a very very weedy show. Our regular listeners know exactly what I mean. Here's what you have. Okay, first of all, let's 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 break it down. WWE is a publicly held company. Its success and or failure rests in many ways on its stock price. Its stock price is dependent upon the revenue it generates. The revenue it generates primarily comes from television, domestic television, international television. There are ancillary revenue streams that are built off of that. Pay-per-view, really in 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 all fairness, I think in WWE's case, the you know the WWE network is an extension now of what used to be the pay-per-view revenue stream almost one and the same merchandising licensing, all of those revenue streams are really dependent upon the commercialization of the brand in the marketplace. The marketplace is driven by kids, teens, preteens, young adults, and, and to a large degree, women in order to attract the advertisers that are attracted to those demographics. You have to create a program that is consistent with the advertisers parameters. You can't have May West or May West, May Young giving birth to a hand. You can't have Steve Austin standing up on, you know, the ring post, you know, chugging a beer, flipping off the audience. Those things are inconsistent with mainstream advertisers that are trying to appeal to a teen and preteen audience. An advertiser has to answer for, to, 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 when an advertiser, you know, uh, BB Dino or Ogilvy Mather, or you know, pick one of the largest advertising agents that control 70 or 80% of the television advertising, you know, revenue that's distributed around the United States. Those advertisers have, they have to answer to their clients. So if I'm, for example, um, I'm going to just pick one out of thin air, Eminem Mars, And my target is teens and preteens and the advertising agency that's in charge of placing that ad in the appropriate programming for me as a client opts to put that advertising in a program that would have been attitude era back in the late nineties where you've got Steve Austin and you've got Mabel runner, not Mabel, I'm sorry. You've got, uh, Women running around with their breasts hanging out and flashing people and all the other crazy shit that made the attitude area so much fun for a certain demographic. If you're an advertiser that's looking for teens and preteens, you're kind of pissed off. You'll be hot at your agency. Your agency may lose that client as a result. And that could be millions and millions of dollars to the agency's bottom line. And it all trickles down to the content so you've got WWE which is a publicly held company which is dependent a lot I don't know what percentage I'm not inside I have no idea I don't want to guess don't want to pretend I know but I would imagine a fair amount of WWE's revenue which is tied to television licensing is based on advertising so if the WWE were to produce content that would appeal to 18 to 39 year old males and go real edgy and you know like it was back in the mid to late 90s, they would lose a significant amount of advertising. Guess what happens to to the share price or the stock price at that point? Once you start losing advertising revenue, Wall Street gets real fucking crazy and they start bailing. You start losing sponsorships. You start losing associations with big brands because your content is too edgy. It's too adult. And your sponsors and your advertisers and other people that you're your partners are not interested in that demo, your business goes down. So it's it's really not I, I'm guessing I again I want to make it really clear. I have I don't talk to anybody, I don't even talk to Bruce Pritchard, even though Bruce is now in WWE. We don't talk about WWE. We just don't. And it's out of respect.
0: I, mean, I think that's uniform. Like I don't either. Like it, it you know if he offers something cool but I'm never just hey how's everything going like that's that's weird. No, but I
1: mean, I mean the eternal machinations and the strategies and all that goes into becoming a billion dollar media property is very complex. And you know as fans and I'm one of them. You know I'm like you. You know I'm yeah, I've been in the business for a while. And I think I know a little bit more about it than the average person walking up and down the street. But when I sit down on my couch and watch it at night, I'm looking for something that entertains me. Right. And oftentimes it's just a little sterile for me. But I also, because I know the business side of it, know that it has to be.
0: Right.
1: It just does. And, and it's frustrating. You know, it is what it is. But, you know, it, it's, look, it's not hard to go out there and produce some more mature content it's not hard to go out there and gash yourself and bleed all over the place and have edgier shit and, you know, do things that are not PG. That's not hard to do. I did it. WWE did it. It's not hard to do. The hard part of doing it is getting advertisers to support it. That's where it gets really tricky. So, you and you know, as much as I hated it, you know, and as much as it pains me to admit it to this day, you know, when Joe Yuva who I've talked about and referenced and was, you know, discussed in Guy Evans' Nitro book. When Guy Evans, who was in charge of, of, of Turner's network ad sales, came to me in July of 1988, he was one of those 15 or 18 people in the meeting and said, no, 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 no. You've got to shift from that 18 to 39-year-old tone, and you need to shift your tone to teens and preteens. I just I threw up in my fucking mouth when he said it, because I knew we would lose audience, but he also knew long-term the only way to really survive from an advertising perspective and a television perspective was to go that route. And it's a real, it's an inherent conflict with the nature of sports entertainment and or professional wrestling, whatever you want to call it. It's an inherent conflict between what the advertising community and television community will expect or accept and what you know will generate interest, and it's re- it's a really tough, it's a it's a tightrope, and you really have to be careful how you try to traverse it.
0: Here's a tightrope question for you. This is from Jeremy Porno. He wants to know who would win in a karate fight: you or Bruce Britchard?
1: It would last less than one thousand one, one thousand two. No, nope, it's over. I'd give it five seconds.
0: And then, it's, and then Bruce is on the ground crying?
1: Yeah, well, I don't know if he'd be crying, but he'd be sucking air.
0: Oh, he'd be hollering. Have
1: you ever had the wind knocked out of you?
0: Yes. Everybody who's played football has had the wind knocked out of them. All
1: right, so here's my thing. And, you know, Sonny Ono, if you ever have a private conversation with Sonny Ono and you ask him about my effectiveness as a martial artist, I was never flashy. I mean, I was physically capable of doing some flashy shit, but I never liked doing it because I liked having. I liked being on the ground. I didn't like jumping and spinning and kicking people in the head. I, I could do it I, athletically. I was capable of it. I did it pretty well. But in a real situation, that shit didn't fly. My thing, first of all, I'm, I'm naturally right-handed. I was born right-handed. I do my right hands almost in every way stronger than my left hand like I can't write with my left hand but if I hit you with my left hand my left hand hits three or four times harder than my right hand even though that my right arm's stronger my right side stronger now there's a reason for that back when I was training really hard I blew my knee I tore my knee up really bad right out of high school when I was doing some Greco-Roman wrestling and I I tore up some cartilage really bad in my right knee now when you're right-handed and you're in martial arts, you fight with your left side forward. So you you use your left leg like a jab. You use your right leg as your power leg. Like if you want to take somebody out, knock them down, whatever. The problem that I had as a natural right-hander with a bad wheel on my right leg is that when you pick up with your left leg to jab or to push people off with a side kick or to set up a punch or whatever, you have to pivot on that right leg. And my right knee was so bad, I couldn't do it. So I spent about four months, and I would literally go into the karate school every night for three or four hours after work, and I would tape with gaff tape, duct tape. I would tape my right hand to my hip, and I would, I would fight with my right side forward because I could pivot on my left leg. And I would use my left hand as my power hand, and I taught myself, over three or four months, to learn how to use my left hand because I knew I couldn't I couldn't fight with my right leg back any longer. I knew I couldn't pivot on it. I couldn't use it for support. I had to use my right leg as a jab and my left side is my power side. And when I adapted to that, and it took a while, it took a long time. It took Actually, really, it took about a year. But once I adapted to that, to this day, if I'm going to hit somebody, I'm not going to hit them with my right hand. I'm going to hit him with my left hand, but my right leg is so strong that my technique really is to fight with my right hand forward. I'll I'll jab you with my right leg. I'll come across low with a, my back leg. I'll sweep your legs out from underneath you, and I will stomp on your head or your body, depending on the situation. If I'm really pissed off, I'll, I'll kick you in the head. If I'm not, I'll stomp on you and, and take your air.
0: Okay, so you've got a whole strategy here. i I, I got to know. When was the last time you kicked a motherfucker in the head? Um, about three years
1: ago. Really? Yeah. Laurie and I, <clears throat> this is a really funny story. I don't know if it's funny or not, but it's the last bar fight I got into. It was about three years ago. And Lori and I, we were living in Phoenix at the time. We said, let's go up to Prescott, Arizona. Jump on the Harley. It was a beautiful day. We'll go up to Prescott. They got an area up in Prescott called Whiskey Row. It's really cool. And You know, Prescott, Arizona is like, you know, while Bill Hickok used to hang out there, you know, I mean, it's like all the really cool outlaws used to hang out there. And a lot of the bars are still there. Some of them burned down and been rebuilt, but it's it's a very cool old Western town. So we jumped on the Harley we drove up there. It was like, got there about five o'clock in the afternoon. It was early. You know, and I thought, well, let's just go in before it gets busy because on the weekends in Prescott, it gets nuts. And I don't like being in busy bars when it gets late. So said, let's just go in and grab a beer. So Lori and I go into this bar and we sit down. We're the only ones at the bar. There's nobody else there. And I was just going to have one or two beers. And by the way, I had a gun on me. I forgot that I had my gun on me. It was in my tucked away in the small of my back. And I actually forgot because I would never bring a gun into the bar. But I realized I had it on me once I got in here. So I figured, well, there's nobody else here. I'm going to have two beers and leave or three beers. No big deal. So I sit down at this bar, and Lori and I are in a conversation. This young kid comes in, probably 22, 25, sits down to my left. Kind of has his back turned to me. No big deal. Lori and I are talking. I've got a full beer sitting in front of me. Out of the corner of my eye, I see this kid reach over, grab my beer, take a big, long motherfucking pull off my beer and set it down right in front of me. And I'm saying to myself, that's kind of an insult. Not sure I can tolerate it. So I, Lori, Lori kind of saw it, but it didn't register with her the same way it did with me. So I got up behind the kid in an amateur wrestling It's called the Chicken Wing, I basically hooked him under his left arm, grabbed him by his chin in a chin drop, and he was about a buck forty or buck fifty. He wasn't a real big kid. I picked him up and threw him off of his stool up against the wall, and he hit the wall and he kind of slithered down. And he looked at me. And he was kind of surprised, and I'm not sure he was completely coherent. Like I think he just thought that beer might have been his. I think he might have been that fucked up, but I. You know, I didn't weigh that all out when I threw him off a stool and he hit the wall and he, I could see he was hot and he started getting up. I said, if you get up, I'm going to knock you out. You should really stay right where you are until I sit down and finish drinking my beer and then you can get up. And he stayed down. And He got up and he walked out. And he comes back. And this is the funny. And I mean, that's as physical as it got. I didn't kick him in the head. I didn't have to. He was scared enough, you know, whatever. So. He leaves, and the bartender saw the whole thing. So I was good with the bartender. He didn't. He, he wasn't hot at me at all. And about 15 minutes later, the kid comes walking in with his uncle. Oh. His uncle's about 45, a pretty stout guy. And he comes walking in with his nephew, and he said, walks up, and we're still the only ones in the bar. And the bartender's back behind the bar, and he comes up to me and he goes, So, heard you beat up my nephew. I said, Well, I didn't really beat him up. Just checked him. Didn't didn't do any damage. We're all good. Because I now at this point I knew I had the gun on me and I didn't want things to escalate. That was my door slamming in the wind. So the guy looked at me and so, goes, so what happened? I said, here's what happened. The bartender was nodding his head. <laughs> and his uncle, the kid's uncle looks at me and goes, fuck, I'm so sorry. He looks at his nephew, goes, buy this gentleman a beer. Be glad you didn't get your brains kicked out. That, that was it. That was the last fight I've been in. It ended really well. It wasn't really a fight.
0: Fun question here from Julian Cannon. What was the story behind the WCW snow brawl? i have only seen it once on MTV. And for years, I kept trying to tell my high school and college friends that this event happened. And they did not believe me. It's been years, but I finally found the footage. And I'll tell you, I had no idea what this was either. So I had to throw up my Google machine. What do you remember about snow brawl? fucking nothing <laughs> i was afraid of that 1999 is when it went down it was pretty bizarre um
1: uh, hopefully i wasn't there well, throw what, you. what 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 month in 1999
0: i'd have to look i mean it was i, it was, I bet you i bet you it was after september for something called snowball
1: yeah okay well it wouldn't have snowed in you know april may june july august
0: well yeah so it's january 23rd 1999 in big bear california you're definitely there but you've blocked it oh
1: shit that's on me i'm sorry i don't remember
0: this makes me happy josh wants to know which theme song did eric prefer the nwo theme or i'm back actually my favorite
1: was white train that was the the theme music that i used when i uh Larrys Abisco in Washington D.C. When was that, ninety-seven or ninety-eight? I think ninety-seven. Th- that was my favorite music, White Train. Uh, we licensed it for a period of months, specifically for that pay-per-view. But other than White Train, and it was from a Quentin Tarantino movie. I think it was Desperado or something like that. That's where the, the song came from. But other than that, um, the WWE music was great.
0: Oh, it was tremendous. Uh, Tim wants to know what is the most important piece of advice you would give to AEW before their TNT debut? Fun question.
1: Oh God. I hate, you know, I'm getting so many of these questions, which is why I didn't go to the AEW event. I told you that just cause I knew it just like people just jumped to so
0: many conclusions so yeah i mean it's weird you know i hosted two of their rallies and then people think i work there where, where do these people come up with these ideas just because i'm holding an aw microphone and I'm standing behind an aw podium doesn't mean i actually do anything for aw you know
1: i'm calling bullshit on that buddy. <laughs> I, no, I love you to death and i'm calling bullshit on that
0: now nah, listen everybody paying attention knows now that i was just a placeholder for uh our boy jr i mean jr was under contract at the time but why in the world would you call a Conrad to host a rally when you got a fucking JR? Come on. Anyway, continue. I'm what just, was your advice? I'm just be? gonna
1: let that one sit for a minute. But thank you. Um, you know, I here. This is so hard. This is why I avoided any association at all because I knew I'd get these types of questions, and I, I hate them. I don't hate the questions; they're good questions, but they're so hard to answer. Here's the truth. This is not me trying to cover my own ass or pander to anybody else. But I don't know what their goals are. Right. I have no idea. I have no idea what the AEW strategy is. I have no idea what the AEW business plan is. I have no idea what the risk tolerance is. I have no idea what their plan B is. I have no idea of anything. I'm just like everybody else who's watching it, seeing it, reading about it hearing about it and i it, i refuse to try to sound like i'm smart enough to give advice to an organization that i know nothing about right <laughs> i just don't you know in a in a you know in a macro kind of way be as different as you could possibly be from the competition it worked for me that was my kind of self-mandate when I launched Nitro is don't try to be better than the competition, be different than the competition and hope hopefully being different is enough to make people want to check you out. And I would stick with that now. Different in which way that, you know, that requires a lot more thought and kind of a granular approach and you need to know, you know, what's your strategy? You know, we talked about ad sales just a few minutes ago. Here's, you know, I only know what I read and I don't know if what I read is even true. Or accurate. But for example, if what I read is true in the AEW TNT deal is TNT is going to cover cost of production, which to me says that TNT is going to actually produce it with their equipment, their crews, their people, because that would make sense. Um, and it would also minimize the expense compared to a third party production company. So I'm assuming TNT is going to actually provide the physical production of the show. And they're going to split on, on some basis, some percentage basis. Let's just say it's 50-50. They're going to split the advertising revenue. Here's what I do know. This is, this is not something I feel slightly intimidated about saying. Selling advertising in wrestling is extraordinarily difficult. Because wrestling is not a drama, but it is. It's not a sitcom, but it is. It's not a sport, but it is. It's its own weird kind of fucking duck, right? And it's really hard to get mainstream, big advertisers, mainstream advertisers, the ones that spend 80% of the revenue in the ad market. It's really hard to get them comfortable with professional wrestling simply because they can't define it. And it makes it hard. And this is, you know, this is the process, Okay. Get out your weed eaters because we're going to get into the fucking weeds. The way advertising is sold is you have your clients, your Mars, your General Mills, your Coors Beer, your General Motors, whatever it is, your big advertisers. They hire agencies and they depend on those agencies to spend the client's money in the most efficient, effective manner possible to get the biggest ROI they can on those advertising dollars and the advertising agency takes a percentage of those dollars that are spent. That's how they make their money. So if an advertising agency says, Hey, General Motors, we're going to spend $4 million over here in this new thing called AEW wrestling on TNT. They've never had wrestling before, not in 25 years, but this new company's come along. They haven't really done television before, but they've had some really good pay-per-views and they got a big buzz, blah, 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 blah. That's a hard sell. There's not many advertising agents or executives that want to go to the client and justify that decision because they do, they have to. They don't just get, they don't just get a bucket of money and the, and the client says go spend it however you think is best. They have to justify those expenditures. They, in many cases, they have to approve them with the client. So, and because of, you know, the fact that wrestling is so unique. It's a very difficult sell. So here's what happens. And Conrad, you know this. Your salesman is much more than I am. What do salesmen normally reach into their bucket of tricks to sell? The hardest thing there is to sell or the easiest
0: thing there is Of course, to sell? the easiest.
1: The hardest thing to sell is professional wrestling, especially a startup. Right? Now, if, an advertising, if, if a client is inclined to spend their money in advertising and wrestling... Where do you think they're going to be prone to spend it In a startup on TNT or over here in AE, or excuse me, in WWE, where they've already got a lot of major clients, somebody else has already crossed that bridge. Somebody else has already proven that it works. Now, if you're a salesman and and if you're an advertising executive, who are you going to try to sell? And that's, what's going to make it hard for AEW. It's not going to be easy for them to generate money, revenue, in the advertising marketplace. And then when they do, they have to split it. So I think that's going to be a tough sell. And if and this is where it's so fascinating and tricky. And this is why I said earlier on strategy is everything. Long term planning is everything. You know, you have to recognize that you're you're swimming upstream if you think you're a new wrestling organ. I don't care if it's AEW, I don't care if they got a billion fucking dollars they're gonna throw at it. It doesn't matter. The advertising community isn't going to latch on like wrestling fans do. The advertising community will latch on five or six or ten years later, once it's proven and it's a phenomenon, it's a part of pop culture, then they'll jump on it. But first two, three, four, five years, it's you're swimming uphill. So I'm not really sure how they plan to manage that part of it. And that's the part that, you know, fascinates me. And, and you know, in my creative mind, I know they're going to have to be different than. If they try to be better than, if they try to replicate WWE, only and try to find a way to do it better, eh, I give them two years tops. but And, and, and they've already proven that they're, they're already on this track. They're going to provide something that it's a legitimate alternative. I know that's what they're thinking based on what we've seen. The question is, how is the advertising, the television community going to adapt to that? I think that's going to be a real uphill battle.
0: Uh, This is fun, man. I'm having fun asking these questions. Although I do disagree about your AEW assessment. I think it's going to be, um, it's going to be bonanzas. John wants to know, did WWE?
1: Let me follow up on that. I'm not saying they're not going to be successful. The question that was posed to me is, what advice do you have? My response was, I can't give anybody advice if I don't know so many, if I don't know the strategy, if I don't know the threshold for pain, if I don't know their timeline, you know, how long are they going to, I mean, there's so many things I don't know that giving giving advice is silly. But my observation is where their challenges are going to be. And I'm not saying they won't, I think they're going to be very successful. I'm absolutely sure they're going to be successful but I don't know how to give them any advice.
0: John wants to know, did WWE ever ask you to be a part of creative? No, no.
1: You know what? what, What's really interesting about that. And I, I reflect back on that a little bit. I'm pretty certain knowing the personalities of the people involved, mainly Vince and and others that if I would have stepped up and said, Hey, I'd like to kind of jump in on this. I'm sure I would have been given that opportunity, but I never offered, and they never asked.
0: I don't know why, but that's interesting to me. Uh, let's keep it moving here. We got this question a lot. Um Well, let me let me pivot to another one first. One wants to know was the Aces and Eighth storyline in TNA partly your creation, and if so, did you make a concerted effort to have a definite blow off to the storyline? since that was something the original NWO angle never had.
1: That was, you know, and I hate to say things like this because it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but that idea was all mine. Um, There was very little, you know, everybody contributed, the talent contributed. You know, once you launch something like that, you start laying scenes out and talking about dialogue and things like that, everybody's got an opinion. And Bully certainly did. Uh, Ken Anderson did quite a bit. Um, a lot of people did. But yeah, that, you know, and it's really interesting, people, you know, unfortunately, you know, TNA was semi-dysfunctional at that point. But if you go back and break that storyline down and follow the arc of that storyline and what we did do to pay it off, that a pretty good storyline. I think if you talk to Bully at any point and ask him how he felt about that storyline, given all the things that he's been through, either at ECW or WWE, I think he puts that ACEs and eights storyline right up at the top of the list in terms of the quality of the story and the way it was executed. I'm, I'm very proud of it, but yeah, it, it definitely wanted to have a bigger blow off. Definitely had an end to it. It wasn't designed to, you know, last forever or, be a catapult or a catalyst for a brand split or anything like that. It was a, it was a, you know, a, a, a freestanding storyline, if you will.
0: We got lots of questions about ACEs and eights, but, uh, I think you pretty much summed up the majority of them there. Uh, Horror movie barbecue wants to know, are there any mementos or souvenirs that Eric kept from his WCW office in Atlanta? None. It is interesting that
1: none. I only, I only have one piece of memorabilia throughout my entire 32 or 33 whatever it is years 34 years in the business and that's the original AWA blazer that I wore when I was hosting ESPN I still have that but I don't have anything else I think I may have a picture or two I don't even know where they are I'd have to really turn my house inside out to find it but no I don't I don't have any memorabilia
0: Uh, Gary wants to know what WCW show are you most proud of? Is there one show you look back at, whether it was a nitro in particular or a certain thunder, (laughs) Uh, maybe a pay-per-view that you look back and say, oh man, if you had to just judge me based on one show, make it that one.
1: There probably is. I don't know it off the top of my head. It's, you know, the, the obvious answers would, you know, I could pick bash at the beach 96 or, you know, there's some big moments, 10 pole events that we could go back and look at, but I'm pretty sure some of the highest quality shows that I did from my perspective, at least today probably don't stand out in the, in the minds of most wrestling fans because I, I judge quality now by continuity, by, by detail of storyline By the emotion, story, anticipation, reality, surprise, action—you know—the the the, the SARSa kind of filter that that I tried as best I could to to use as a filter. And I'm sure there are a lot of shows that we did that you know people may not even remember. But from a television point of view, were we're great television. I I just you know I'd have to really go back and watch a lot of shit because we produced a fair amount of it. Uh, Alice, why, is that, why is that funny?
0: Come I don't on, know. Just you. we've produced uh, you know, I'd have to watch some of that shit. We produced a fair amount of it. The the, the phrasing tickled me. Sorry.
1: Well, I'm just being honest. Yeah. Uh, Alice talk, I mean, I'm talking, I'm oh. talking to you and our listeners the way I would th- just imagine we're all sitting around a table, having a beer and a, and a hot dog and talking about wrestling. That's what this podcast is. I'm just not trying to sound pretentious or too smart or just answering the question the best I can.
0: Allison Faye wants to know whose career do you think would benefit the most from making the transition from wrestler to manager slash ballet?
1: Hmm. What was that one again? Give me that one again.
0: Whose career do you think would benefit the most from making the transition from wrestler to manager slash ballet? I
1: mean, I'm, I'm guessing she means like currently.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go to another
1: question if you need to. Yeah, that that question doesn't make a lot. I mean, I think I understand it, but I don't know how to answer it without the right context. I don't know if she means back in the day or currently. So well,
0: let's that for another show. Give me a back in the day.
1: Back in the day to transition from wrestler to manager to valet.
0: No, not, not, said, not, not to valet, just you know, well, someone trying to be a wrestler who needed to be on the outside of the fucking ring. I I feel like I'm talking to myself here, but like Spud is a great example of somebody who went in to be a wrestler and then became a wrestling, more of a wrestling personality and has been a home run. And there's some other guys in NXT who were perhaps independent wrestlers, but maybe they have sights set for them to be something different on the main roster. Leo Rush comes to mind. Is there anyone in particular back in the day who was just dead set on, I want to be a wrestler, but really their highest and best use was probably somewhere else.
1: I think Disco Inferno would have been a fantastic manager. Excellent. A fantastic manager. Cause you wanted to kick the shit out of it. You just did. And he was a great talker, and he understood the psychology. He understood the psychology of a good heel character and a babyface character. He was willing to be the foil. He could bump like a million bucks. I think Disco Inferno could have probably had a much better career as a manager than he did as a wrestler.
0: No argument from me there. That's a great answer. Based on those parameters. Joel wants to know, what do you think of NXT version of war games? I don't know if you saw this, but they pulled the top off and they put platforms in the corners. Still calling it war games, but it doesn't really look like war games. What say you?
1: I I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. And I don't want to second guess anything. Maybe it's doing tremendously well. And just like giving advice to AEW, giving advice to WWE is probably a silly thing to try to do at this point because I'm not there. But I, I, I just don't like referring back to certain things. You know what I mean? Like referring back to war games. Eh, unless you're going to follow that format and really make it important and stick to it and build upon it every year, just come up with something fresh. All right. Be different. Don't, don't try to reach back into your wrestling bag of tricks and pull out something that people kind of remember and modify it. Just start off with something new.
0: Josh wants to know for the short time sting turned heel in 99. How did he feel about it? And why was that not made into an even bigger angle?
1: Yikes. What part of
0: 99 was that? You know, (laughs) I love that's your Go to wasn't me. Oh, it was January. Oh, fuck. No, I didn't
1: say it wasn't me. I just don't remember exactly when it was for fuck's sake. I'm not trying to palm it off on somebody else, but I'm trying to remember. I, you know, I, I'd have to go back and look at it and, and it jog was, my
0: memory. I think it was September.
1: September of 99?
0: Yeah. I'm out. See, that's what I, I knew you were going to say. But that might be, If it was after
1: September 10th, 1999, I got nothing to fucking
0: do with it. Justin has a question that we get a variation of every time we do something like these. If you had your own company, would you hire Conrad Thompson? And if so, what would he do?
1: I'd make him CEO. I'd,
0: <laughs> I'd
1: I'd I'd work for that bitch. <laughs> oh, my God. I'd, this... I'd make him tell me what to do every day.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't yell that way, right? Uh, hey, Graham wants to know, was there a moment when you realized, holy smokes, I've made it. Uh, this is turning around after you became the executive producer. And if so, what was that moment? Can I guess? Go ahead and guess. My guess is... Bash at the beach ninety four when Hogan Flair happened.
1: No, it was after that. It was it was probably a couple months after Nitro debuted. Because we were still treading water. I mean we were doing better. We were, you know, ninety four to your point. Um your example.
0: Oh, I got it. So here here it is then. When you turn that dollar profit for WCW. Yes. yes.
1: That was all that mattered to me, honestly. That was my my focus was so, I was so linear, linearly focused on that first dollar. It's all I cared about. It's all I cared about. If we would have been within $10,000 of making that first dollar a profit, I would have spent $10,000 of my own money to get us over the finish line. It's all I cared about. Because I really believe, well, it's not that I believed it, I knew it that if WCW would get to the point where it wouldn't be in red, it would have lasted forever. In my mind at that time, with, with you know, under Ted Turner. And I would, I would have been right about that. Because Ted was fine with it losing money. Ted was. The rest of the company wasn't. But Ted was fine with it. And I just knew if I could turn that first dollar profit, the rest of the company would have to shut the fuck up. And I would have made Ted happy, and we'd have been gold. So, yeah, turning that first dollar profit was... But, you know, here's what's funny, Conrad. I never, I never at any point felt like I made it, like like the pressure was off. Like, even after the first dollar profit, when Harry Anderson got down on one knee at, at a local pizza place in downtown Atlanta in front of all of our employees at a Christmas party and handed me the first dollar profit, literally, that WCW ever made as a part of Turner Turner Broadcasting I, you know, you would think I would have felt like oh I finally made it but that was just that was fun that was just a way to motivate people and it was a way to have some fun with Harry Anderson and kind of bridge the distance between WCW as the redheaded stepchild and the corporate part of Turner Broadcasting which was a big part of my goal at that time that was really just fun but there was never a time I can honestly say this where I felt like I made it the only thing I ever felt was more pressure to jump higher or to make more money or to be more successful or to get a higher rating. I never felt like I made it.
0: Well, that's not depressing at all. Anthony wants to know. Eric- no, it's not.
1: Depre- bro, that's not depressing. You are the same way. You are exactly like me in that respect. You did the first star cast. Did you feel like you made it? Did you feel like you made it on the second one?
0: Absolutely not.
1: Fuck not. You were already planning on the third one before you left the second one. You're just like me. You're an entrepreneur, and entrepreneurs never feel like they've made it. I don't think. I, I think if the minute you feel like you've made it, you stop thinking. You stop imagining. You stop using your imagination. You, start working, you stop working as hard. I, I never want to feel like I've made it. I've made it and unmade it and made it and unmade it probably 20 times throughout my adult life. And I'm cool with that. The minute I feel like I've made it, eh, that's like, it's like being dead.
0: Dustin has a great question. The type that I like, Eric, when you were selling AWA to syndication, what did those deals look like economically?
1: They were a barter. It was strictly a barter. You put the show on the air. Um, We'll split our advertising. When we come to your market, we'll buy advertising on your local station. That was it. There was nothing more complicated than that. <laughs> so the idea the idea is you would go in and you would convince you know a, a program director or a general manager, depending on who you're pitching. You'd convince them that you know wrestling still draws an audience and you could you know for me in AWA, I could point to our ratings in Minneapolis or Milwaukee or even Chicago at the time, or in smaller markets like Madison, Wisconsin, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I could point to success. I could say, look, this is what we're doing on Sunday mornings between 10 and noon. Here's the kind of ratings we're getting. So it was you know, it was it wasn't a tough sell. And at that time of day, advertising again, because it's television, Advertising is a little tough in those day parts. So if you go in and say, look, we'll split. We're not going to charge you for the programming because most networks have to pay for content. We're not going to charge you for it, but we'll split the advertising revenue and we'll come here once a month. And when we do, we'll spend five or ten grand you know, on that week advertising our event. Most markets felt like that was a pretty good deal compared to a local fishing show or you know, religious programming or whatever is usually in that kind of weekend day part.
0: I prefer the air asks favorite person to travel with.
1: Didn't have any, you know, I only, the only person I really traveled with was DDP and I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it, but I would have much preferred to be (laughs) it. I I like being alone.
0: No shit. You do. I, I think that's sort of underrated. And I think people misread you as a result, like, what type of social time you were in Vegas for multiple days. What type of social time did you and I have together? Zero. Yeah. That's, and that's not unique. Like when we do shows on the road, it's like, you know, you could do your thing and I got do mine and then we get together. You just, and I think some people read that is Eric is arrogant. Eric is an asshole. Eric is standoffish. Eric is whatever, but that's just your personality. You probably hear I that t- all the time. I,
1: I, I like being alone. Mm-hmm. I, I I preferred, you know, because a lot of times, you know, when I was in Vegas, I was thinking a lot. I was, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm always looking around me and looking at opportunities or trying to see if there's opportunities that maybe are are not quite as obvious to me, you know, when I'm not in a big environment. But I I don't chat much, you know. I mean, I hung out with Sonny and Ernest and Scott Norton and, you know, a couple other people. But even that was brief. You know, out of the entire four days, I may have spent three hours total having dinner and going out to eat and things like that. The rest of the time I was by myself walking around, checking things out.
0: The classic wrestling question comes to us from Mike. Who is on Eric's Mount Rushmore of wrestling?
1: Oh, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Vince McMahon. One more. Uh, The fourth one's tough. Because there's so many, I mean, it would, you know, easily Andre the Giant could be an easy answer, but so could, you know, so could Luthez, so could any number of other people. But, you know, when I, when I think about that, cause I get asked that question often, you know, you, I have to think about it for me personally, not who is necessarily the most important in terms of you know the best wrestler or whatever, but who actually moved the needle the most? who moved, who built the business the most. And that's where the Hogan's of flair, the Steve Austin's of Vin, Vince McBans. That's probably what I would go with, by the way, those would be my four. Um, because they moved the needle the most.
0: Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. Fun question here from Dan. Can you talk about your involvement in the WCW home video distribution? I was a tape collector and noticed several pay-per-views in that era were not released on home video, Not in the U S but in the UK. Also, what are your memories of the Boston brawl internet only paper? Listen, uh, we'll do the last question first. Who first pitched paper, listen, and and why were you sold on it?
1: I wasn't necessarily sold on it. It was an experiment. And again, that was the beginning of the, you know, I don't say the beginning, but it was the early phases of the internet where it was kind of the wild, wild west. And we were all trying to figure out how best to monetize it so that's all that was no more no less the first question i actually had nothing to do with home video i mean that was sharon Sevilla primarily and she was a vp so she had the authority to enter into deals um for the most part on her own um as long as she didn't go outside of certain protocols and all that but um yeah i didn't have anything to do with that
0: We do get lots of questions about that. Lots of old tape collectors. Uh, Frank Johnstone wants to know when you go to the WWE, what surprised you the most about Vince McMahon?
1: Wow. This will sound like I'm pandering or kissing ass and I don't want it to
0: be. I bet I can guess. What? The way he was with his kids.
1: No, because that wasn't apparent to me. You know, I didn't see, I, I did see some of that interaction but very little of it. I actually saw it the first night that I came in, you know, after I came out and made my big reveal and all of that. Um, backstage, you know, Shane was there. Linda was there. Stephanie was there. And after the show, everybody kind of got together. Cause I, you know, I think everybody recognized it was kind of a unique moment to have me there in that role. And, and I read people pretty quickly. I'm not saying accurately. Sometimes I misread people. In fact, frequently, but I like to believe I'm a pretty good read. And when I saw Vince with his family, I went, okay, that's a different cat than I thought. But you only get a glimpse of that. You only see a little bit of that. Not a lot of it. I think what I saw that surprised first of all, here's the first there was a couple of things. One is the absolute loyalty of the people backstage now, and I'm sure in the office it's much the same way. I just, I was never in the office. so I don't know. But when I saw, it's a difference between hiring a bunch of subcontractors to come and work on your house and hiring family members to come and work on your house. You know, the people that were backstage that I experienced, you know, Bruce, obviously being one of the first, but everybody else just, there was, there was a loyalty, to the brand and to the company that was way different than what I was used to. You know, WCW, I I, want to make really clear. We had, you know, Craig Leathers, you know, Annette Yothers, Tony Schiavone, you know, Neil Pruitt, David Crockett, you know, there were a bunch of people, many more than I've named just now, that were really, really loyal. You know, David Crockett, I think, being one of the most. But they represented a very small part of the pool, people that it took to get that show up on the air. The rest of them were freelancers and they were good and they were professional. I'm not, not busting their balls, but there's a big difference between people who, you know, are longtime employees of the company who believe in it, who've stuck with it. They fought through, you know, the shit that I put them through. They almost went out of business. They came out on top. There's a loyalty there in an intensity of that loyalty that you can't really quantify that easily it's, but it's there. And that was, that was something that, that I noticed right away, you know, just, just the loyalty, the intensity of that loyalty to the company and to the people that they work for.
0: We got lots of questions about Goldberg here, but this one stuck out to me. Kevin wants to know how come Goldberg and macho man never had a match in WCW? Was there a reason they never got together?
1: There wasn't a reason. I I, I just think, you know, given all the storylines and all the things that we're doing during the time that we were doing it, it just, I don't want to say it wasn't necessary, but it just wasn't top of mind. You know, I mean, Goldberg had some pretty good story. There wasn't anybody that Bill had a storyline with. It wasn't a pretty good storyline, at least that I can recall. Uh, Randy had his own great storylines that he was involved with. So it just really wasn't necessary.
0: Before Goldberg was the, uh, the monster of WCW Vader was, but of course as a bad guy, Brim wants to know would Eric have booked Goldberg versus Vader. And if yes, what type of finish would he have liked? Uh, I'm stuttering, trying
1: to answer the question. No, I would have never put them together. Bill, you know, Bill, especially. 98, 99, whenever he debuted, late 97, whatever it was, his repertoire just, you had to be really careful who you booked him with. And the style of match was really challenging. You know, Bill couldn't go out there and work, you know, a 20 or 30 minute match with half a dozen false finishes and, and all of that crazy shit. He, he, his, his skill sets were really, really limited. His character was very, very well defined. His character didn't allow for him to engage in a lot of different types of psychology and storytelling. His character was very limited. It was very well defined. And it was very effective. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking it. It's huge, but it, he he wasn't a versatile player. And Vader, you know, at his peak wasn't necessarily the easiest guy for a lot of people to work with. So putting those two dynamics together and hoping to get something great out of it, wouldn't have occurred to me.
0: Alan Myers wants to know how difficult was it to keep Roddy Piper signing and him showing up at Halloween Havoc 96, a secret?
1: Not at all. Not at all. Roddy was a, you know, traditional You know, trustworthy. I mean, Roddy was somebody. Once we made up our mind, because Roddy knew. Here's the thing. I, you know, I can put Roddy over, and I will, because he was an honest person. He was somebody. If I said Roddy, I want to keep this between you and I. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't lay in bed at night wondering if he was going to spill the beans to Dave Meltzer, you know, Wade Keller, whoever else. You know, I didn't worry about him. You know, walking into a room full of wrestling fans and talking about something openly. It wasn't. That was not even. It wouldn't have even crossed my mind to think about that. Roddy was one of those people, when you looked him in the eye and you shook hands with him, you knew that what he said was true, and, and he'd live up to it. So that part was easy. And this was before social media and everything else. So it, it really wasn't that difficult. You know, you had to go through, you know, I had to do things a little differently, you know. had to make sure, you know, when Nick Lambrose, who was my legal guy, uh, did the contract, that, you know, he he had to know. This one had to be discreet. Uh, When we booked travel, had to do that differently because if it would have gone through the Turner Broadcasting, you know, travel department, then, you know, three dozen people would have known and they wouldn't have known to keep it quiet. They would have started talking about it in the office. And before you knew it, you know, inadvertently, not intentionally, but inadvertently, that kind of shit gets out. So, you know, you have to make certain arrangements, same way I did when I came into WWE. When I came into WWE, they wanted to fly me in. I said, whoa, no, don't fly me in. I'll fly myself in. You can reimburse me after the fact. Because the minute my name shows up on some kind of travel document inside the travel department of WWE, and I'm not knocking them, you know, because I certainly wasn't inside, but I made it clear that I thought it was a mistake for them to do it that way. And I offered to book myself and they could reimburse me later because so often the things that leak out aren't intentional. People, you know, aren't spilling the beans because they want to. It's sometimes it just happens by accident. So you've got to kind of anticipate those things and and make sure they don't happen. And that was the case with Roddy. But, you know, as far as dealing with Roddy, that was easy.
0: Cody had a fun question. What was the most stressful episode of Nitro?
1: Oh, fuck. (laughs) Huh. Oh God, I couldn't begin. they were all pretty stressful. Hard to pick one. Honestly. I mean,
0: here's the, here's one you can pick then. Chris Herman wants to know, was there any talent from WWF or ECW that called and wanted to jump to WCW that Bischoff had absolutely no interest in signing? I'm sure there were several, but pin down one for us.
1: Not really. Not really. And that's not to say that, you know, I hired everybody that reached out to me, but Again, this is going to sound a little arrogant, but think back. 95, 96, 97, until Thunder came along and we knew we needed more talent, which is why Bret Hart came on board, we didn't really need anybody. It wasn't like, oh, my God, I got to get this guy in order to achieve this. We were already achieving this without having to hire a lot of people. So there was nobody really that... Um, I mean, people would put the, you know, and that's the other thing. It's not like people would pick up the phone, you know, ask for Eric Bischoff and offer to come in. You know, a lot of times the the conversations take place very subtly, privately, between friends, somebody that knows, somebody that knows Terry Taylor, you know, whoever, Kevin Sullivan, name your, you know, booking committee member. Um, and they put the word out. and And then Terry or Kevin or somebody would come to me and say, hey, what do you think about this guy? But again, 96, 97, 98, we didn't need a lot of people.
0: No arguing that for me. One of the questions uh, that we got was about somebody jumping. This comes from D Brooks. He wants to know the narrative via 83 weeks so far is that Randy Savage signing was a direct correlation to Hogan already being on board. My question is if no Hogan, do you think you would still have a shot to land? Randy is WCW even on his radar without Hulk's assurances.
1: That is the best question I think I have ever been asked, either on social media or certainly on this podcast. What a great question. Who who sent that question in?
0: Derek Brooks.
1: Derek Brooks, you're my hero. I love good questions. I think the honest answer to that is no. I don't think if Hogan if Hogan hadn't come on board, let's just speculate, you know, it's hypothetical. If Hogan would have said, screw it, I'm done with wrestling. I'm gonna go make movies and Thunder in Paradise. I never want to wrestle again. I don't think I could have gotten Randy over. I don't think I could have. What? Randy, Randy was a guy that needed, as strong as Randy was as a character, and as confident as he was, he knew he had he was smart. He knew he had to be around other equally high-profile talent in order to survive long-term. Randy probably, and I'm guessing now, obviously, but knowing Randy as well as I did, and I think I knew him pretty well, business-wise, Randy would have known that he could have come over without Hogan, sans Hogan. He could have come over on his own. He would have, could have made a big splash for a short period of time. But without the right cast of characters around him, he would have been smart enough to realize it would have been short-term and he would have opted for a longer-term play because he was that smart.
0: wants to know, and this is a fun question. Since Hulkamania ended the next time Hogan showed up on a pay-per-view after Uncensored 96, do you think Kevin Sullivan realizes that the alliance to end Hulkamania actually succeeded? <laughs>
1: It's a smart-ass question.
0: It's great, though, because, you know, you you put 30 motherfuckers in three cages to end Hulkamania, and that was his last pay-per-view until he turned and joined the NWO. So, technically, Kevin Sullivan's got the last laugh. Maybe we should do a deep dive, do you think, maybe, on the— I I think we should get Kevin—we
1: should get uh, Kevin—Kevin is so much fun. I love—I saw Kevin at Sarcast in Vegas, and we didn't get a chance to get together. We threatened to do it. We didn't. But— in Chicago, your first sarcast. we got to hang out a little bit, and it was so great seeing him again. He's such a cool dude. This this time, it was David Crockett. I got to hang out with David Crockett, you know, because you brought him in for StarCast. It was so great to see David because these are guys that I haven't seen in 20 or 25 years. But I think it will be fun to do a podcast. We, we should get him on here as a guest. Let's ask him that question.
0: Yeah, we'll try to get him over on Patreon sometime soon. Um great question in here about, um, Patreon. Did I ask you this one already? Nope. Because someone referenced it and I thought, man, I think we've talked about this. Anthony Esposito says, Eric, last year on Patreon, you taught viewers how to cut a promo and it was amazing. Would you ever train people to be a manager slash cut promos, etc.? cetera? So I guess some of our listeners may not be aware, but we have Uh, a Patreon where you can get some extra bonus content. And one of the things you do is from time to time is you'll go live and do a little interaction, a little Q and a, and it's much more intimate experience than just say, Hey, post a question on Twitter. You're actually giving feedback and and reacting in real time. And you did like a little seminar on, Hey, here's what makes a good promo. Have you ever thought about holding a seminar like that or doing something like that? Yeah, I have actually. Um,
1: You know, and uh, I gotta, I, I'm always hesitant to answer questions like this or to talk about these things. I don't. I don't want to sound like I'm shilling, right? That way, but I actually feel like within the last five years, I've really figured out the formula. Not not the formula, a formula doesn't apply to everybody. Doesn't work for everybody, but. You know, it's like all the time I was doing it, I didn't really understand why I was good at it because I was pretty good at promos. I mean, I was I'm not being a dick and patting myself on the back, but on a scale of one to ten, you know, I was I was up there. You know, I I could cut a promo with the best of them, and I didn't really understand how or why it was. It came kind of second nature to me. It wasn't until actually I was in TNA when I was starting to produce other people, other than me and myself. Um, then I started to have to break the formula down a little bit in order to communicate it in a way that people could actually grab a hold of it and try to figure it out. And in that process of producing other people and directing other people, it started to become clearer and clearer to me that there really is a formula to it. And and now even you know, quite a bit after that, that was like four or five years ago. I've really started thinking about that process more thinking, you know, thinking about storytelling more part of it is because I'm doing different things and producing television shows and, you know, a movie and things like that. So you have to start thinking differently about storytelling. That's what it all comes down to. It's all storytelling, whether it's a promo or a scene in a movie or a wrestling match or a song. And even songs have formulas, really great songs have really distinct formulas mechanisms that make help make them great but the the i i think and it's you know when i watch and i'm not going to say who's wrestling anymore when i watch wrestling now um even some of the independent things i'm watching and i'm going oh my god they don't have a clue they really it's not that they're not good at it they just don't know how to be good at it and i do think about that because it's it, it it's frustrating for me i'm sitting here i'm getting excited talking about it obviously Only because, to me, it's so attainable. It's really not that hard if you think about it differently. If you go out and you do what 99% of the people that do it, I don't care if you're in the independent scene or in AEW or WWE, for the most part, unless you're a small handful of people that have already learned how to do it, you're going to memorize what you're going to say, word for word. I don't give a fuck what Chris Jericho says. I watched him in WWE going over his scripts with Brian words. You know, so I, you know, he, he has the, Chris has obviously the ability to improv. But, and of course, when he was doing it in WWE, he was following their kind of mandate, and that's the way they did things. But the majority of people that I see go out there and they memorize their stuff. And it, it, it's just like three, two, one, go. And whether it's because they're they're forced to memorize it, because they're forced to read off a script, or because that's the only thing they really know, is to memorize their stuff. They don't really put themselves into the promo, and it's really not that hard. The formula is quite simple. You have to practice it like anything else. It doesn't, you know, it's not like somebody's going to say, okay, here's a formula, and then you're going to be able to go out and do it. But if you look at, if you look at a way to approach. A promo. And I, I don't want to play like hide and go seek here. It's really simple shit for me. It's a beginning and a middle and an end. You know, if you're a babyface, you set that promo up. You're not yelling. You're not screaming because you're a babyface. You shouldn't be that hot. You should be respectful. You should be humble. You should be grateful to be there. You should start out slow and low. Don't start out screaming because if you start out screaming, you got nowhere to go. And if you're a babyface and that that first act of your promo, I don't care if it's a three minute promo or a six minute promo, whatever it is, divide it up by three. If, if you get to TV and you, they say, okay, you got six minutes. Okay, the first two minutes, you should be setting the stage as a baby face. The second two minutes, you should be putting yourself in jeopardy. Put your heel opponent over. Don't try to be tougher than, cooler than, smarter than, faster than, whatever than your opponent. Put yourself at risk. identify the stakes. What's going to happen if you win? What's going to happen if you lose? What are your fears? How are you you in jeopardy? If you're a babyface, you have to put yourself in jeopardy. If you're a babyface and you come out there and you do the road warrior, we're going to get your ass. It doesn't matter who you are. We're going to eat you alive. And then you go out and eat them alive. You're no longer a babyface. Now you're a heel. If you're a babyface, make yourself a babyface. Make people want you to win. Make them care about whether or not you achieve your goal. And what's your goal? Oh, by the way, because you've identified the stakes. You've made it personal. Everybody that's listening to you knows what's going to happen to you if you win. What's going to happen to you if you you lose. And the greater and more more clear those stakes are, the more that promo is going to resonate. And then in the third act, convince everybody that you're going to do everything you possibly fucking can to make this work. But don't put yourself over at the expense of your heel opponent. If you just do those and learn now, I've just made this sound really simple because it was a very general approach or it was a formula. But if you learn how to cut your promos, thinking about it in those three pieces, three acts, the beginning, set yourself up, put yourself at risk. Second act, you know, what's going to happen if you win or you lose, really identify the stakes in the third act tell everybody what you hope to be able to accomplish and how much you want them to be behind you, you've just cut a great fucking promo. And if you're a heel, you kind of reverse that process. And you chicken shit your way through it in, in, a, in a reverse kind of process. It's a very simple formula, but you, like any formula, you have to, you know, I can, somebody could teach me how to play Indigata da vita, the fucking, you know, rhythm guitar. You could teach it to me, doesn't mean I can do it. Unless I practice and practice and practice, but I think you know, cutting promos is such a lost art, and it's so important. You know, I think one of the reasons that, not one of them. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why um, Dest, Dustin and, and Cody worked so well, but that was that was a believable. There was backstory. It was inherent, right? They didn't have to work at it. They didn't need TV to tell that story. They could tell that story in social media, and, and they were able to to do it effectively. But that was such a great story. Stories are everything. I don't care. I mean, I'm not putting down the athleticism and, and the evolution of the in ring product because I actually dig it. I'm not one of those old school guys that piss and moan and bitch about people not selling and all that. I'm not that guy. I dig what's going on. I really, really do. But I don't dig it so much that I'm willing to throw away the necessity of story. And telling stories is always going to be what drives any form of entertainment. I don't care if it's wrestling, movies, music, books, television commercials, selling Viagra. It doesn't fucking matter. You've got to have a great story.
0: Well, and we hope that you guys have uh, enjoyed the great stories that Eric Bischoff has bestowed upon us today. We're going to wrap up today's Q and a episode today's ask Eric anything episode. I guess we should address, uh, we're late today because, uh, I, I, didn't land until 1122 last night. So, there would have been no way for us to get this done and it still be uh, remotely enjoyable for Eric. So, we had to make it happen today on Monday, but you're getting it right out of the tap today, baby. We appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you here next week. We ran through the entire lineup. We're going to go ahead and get that on social uh, coming up here pretty soon, but lots of fun stuff coming your way. In the meantime, please support our sponsors. Follow us on Twitter. He is Hattie Bischoff. I am a hey, hey, hey it's Conrad. We are at 83 Weeks, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.